Mic check, 212, bitch. What's up, guys? This is DDP back with another edition of Feeling Dangerous. Now, I might be rolling a little bit slower today in terms of getting the content out, but that's because I am somewhat reformatting the Feeling Dangerous podcast here, and it's going to have some initial bumps and whatnot as we get into the flow of it. But... First and foremost today, I want to kick things off with a little bit of Dallas Cowboys talk. Yes, that is a little bit more of a rarity these days on the channel, but don't worry, Mavericks fans, I am coming around to that content you want because I got a lot to say about the latest potential setback with KP and, uh, hey, post-game show the other night against the Kings. But first and foremost, we got to take a look at something which might be probably one of, it's it's ongoing But it's one of the biggest snubs of the Pro Football Hall of Fame that we've had in some time here. Drew Pearson, in the Centennial class, was denied. Now, this is a bigger class than usual. Instead of the usual 10 or 11 guys, we're talking like 20 guys that are getting in. And the idea was that this would break up the logjam, the monotony of drawing this out. Because, hey, we know that in the 70s, you had the Cowboys and you had the Steelers that were the two great teams that sent tons of Hall of Famers in. So rather than just having all these guys all in one class, they've tried to break them up and take them out piece by piece by piece. But there's a stunning omission in how they've handled this, and that is one Drew Pearson, the original number 88 and the single biggest name to have ever appeared on the Dallas Prospect YouTube channel. Yes, we were able to, two seasons ago, have a brief sit-down with Drew Pearson at a Cowboys Experience event. That was a lot of fun. Got to talk a little bit of previewing the Cowboys-Lions game with him the day before the game back then. Uh, yeah, this is this is a mind-boggling omission on the Pro Football Hall of Fame's part because Drew Pearson is the only, I repeat, the only NFL Hall of Famer all-decade team man, all-decade team player to not be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You heard that right. All-70s team, he's not there. Literally, every player at every position for that te- for that decade is there. Your safeties, your corners, your running backs, your kickers, your punt returners, they're all there. Drew Pearson is not. All the guys from the 70s, minus Drew Pearson, there. All the guys from the 80s, there. 90s, there. What are we doing? What are we doing? We got in Jimmy Johnson, and that was a great emotional moment. You saw Jimmy Johnson getting choked up at halftime when it was announced to him. You saw his former quarterback, Troy Aikman, who was uh, broadcasting that game. They cut back to Troy, and you saw Troy's reaction to finding out Jimmy got it, and you saw the tears in his eyes. That is a great moment. You had Cliff Harris, a great Cowboys safety from the 70s. Get in. And so while the Cowboys got representation in this class, the denial here of Drew Pearson, the the recipient of the official first Hail Mary in NFL history, is insane. In case you don't remember... It wasn't like it was called the Hail Mary. It was what Staubach referred to the pass as after the game when he had to throw just a desperation deep ball. You had Drew Pearson haul it in, take it in for the deciding score. And yeah, Roger Staubach after the game just said, you know, I said a quick prayer and threw up a Hail Mary. Boom. There you go. And if you look at these stats, I understand that, you know, there there was just 
frustration for Terrell Owens having to wait a couple of years before he finally got in. And as bad as that was for him, he did eventually get in. His numbers certainly warranted it. But if you want to talk about for Drew Pearson, who's been waiting forever, it seems like, and you compare that to another wide receiver from the 70s that got in, uh, Lin Swan, we have a real debate here because Pearson's numbers are pretty much as good or better as Lin Swan, and yet he got snubbed. So in this case here, we want to talk about games played. Drew Pearson, 156 compared to 116. Uh, game started, 144 compared to 96. Receptions, 489 compared to 336. That's in favor of Drew Pearson. Yards, 7,822 compared to 5,462. Mm. Then we take a look here at... Let's see, yards per attempt or yards per reception, 16 for Pearson, 16.3 for Swan. Not much better for Swan there. Uh, touchdowns, 48 compared to 51. Longest receiving touchdown of his career, 67 for Pearson, 68 for Swan. And yet, Swan's been in for a long time. And I'm not trying to say, hey, uh, Swan doesn't deserve to be in there. No, of course he does. But you know who else does? Drew Pearson. Drew Pearson deserves to be in the NFL Hall of Fame. And the fact that it's drawn out this long is kind of a joke. Like, the whole idea of this centennial class going in was that they were going to get in a lot of these guys who were caught in this logjam, get them into the Hall of Fame where they deserve to be. I mean, if you want to go with the only... I said earlier that I think it was every player off that all-NFL team from the 70s is there... I think I think if you expanded that further, you could say maybe the punt like Ray Guy is in the NFL Hall of Fame. Like a punter is in before Drew Pearson. But if you want to look at it this way, you could say I think from that '70s team, you got like a kick returner and a kicker are the only ones not in, other than maybe Drew Pearson. Like it's that mind-boggling that he has been left out all these years because. There are guys in the Hall of Fame at his position who have done that. Now, you could say, well, hey, Swan was on the Steelers, and the Steelers were, like, the, you know, original dynasty, basically. But, okay, the Cowboys, the whole America's Team moniker started in the 70s, so it's not like the Cowboys were a bunch of bums. No, they were the second-best team, multiple championships. He's a multiple-time champion. Like, what, what, what else are you looking for? As far as the big plays and the big moments, you had that with Drew Pearson. So this is a this is a crying shame. There's not really any excuse for not having Drew Pearson in the NFL Hall of Fame, but you know what? That's how the politics of it all works. So hopefully, hopefully, I feel for Drew because he had this huge gathering uh when the official announcements were coming down. That's where this photo here is taken from. And he had a lot of friends and family around and he's wearing, you know, the Hail Mary hat and everything. And it didn't come out. And it was almost painful. It was almost painful to watch because you could see the emotion in his face. You could see how upset and dejected and frankly kind of confused he was about it. He's 69 years old. There's no reason at this point for him to not go in. The only thing I can hope is that because we had to see and you could hear the emotion in his voice when he did talk about it. He's upset about this. He's been waiting a long, long time for this. And so you hope that maybe the consolation or not consolation prize, but maybe as a result of seeing this in this video, 
uh, going around a little bit that maybe, just maybe next year, they'll finally be like, yeah, we can't let that happen again because it's kind of ridiculous that he's not in. Now that we actually look at it on paper and realize he's the only all-decades player to not be in the Hall of Fame and his stats are better than guys who are already in, there, there's no there's no excuse for this. So it, it's a joke. It's a joke that he's not in. The fact that you can't literally say, hey, it's a centennial class. We're already breaking the rules in terms of how many guys we're getting in. Let's add one more or let's add two more or whatever. Just get the guy in because if you cannot tell the story of the Dallas Cowboys, as Jean-Jacques Taylor likes to say on ESPN, uh, you cannot tell the story of the Dallas Cowboys with at least including a chapter about Drew Pearson. And the Cowboys, America's team, you can't tell the story of the NFL, period, without the Dallas Cowboys. So if this guy gets his own chapter in the story of the Cowboys and the Cowboys are as integral to the to the entire league and sport as they are, then there's no reason he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Period. End of sentence. Next, staying on the topic of the Dallas Cowboys, we shift gears into the newest Dallas Cowboys head coach, the ninth coach in the team's history, Mike McCarthy. Now, there are going to be some changes here. We know his staff is going to be different than Jason Garrett's staff, although there are some similarities, right? He, he is keeping Kellen Moore on as his offensive coordinator, which is, I think, good for Dak, but I will be curious to see if McCarthy, who has largely taken the play-calling duties for his career, if he continues that now with the Cowboys, or if Kellen Moore is still allowed to build on what he did last year. And hell, even in that extent, we wondered to what degree he really had control and influence over that versus Jason Garrett kind of uh, overruling him and overriding him. So that's a legitimate question, but one that we're going to have to wait for answers to later frankly so in the meantime let's keep the focus on what we know surprising changes to the coaching staff rod marinelli gone he's to oakland or excuse me las vegas at this point uh with the raiders and you do bring in the tight ends coach from the giants you steal him away i think that's good because dallas you know i I think jarwin is a free agent they're gonna have to do something there but I don't think Witten comes back. I think Witten came back for one last stab at it. And although he had his nice moments and basically, I think he tied, ended up tying, correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, uh, Des for the franchise record at touchdowns, but he did not surpass it. Or if he didn't tie it, he fell one shy of it. Regardless, uh, Witten's production slowed down as the year went on. That happens when you're 38 and you can only run about six yards before you're brought down because you're certainly not making anyone miss at that age but in that in that uh hiring i think that you're going to see an increased importance on the tight end position mccarthy obviously is a coach who has very much believed in the west coast offense having worked with montana uh, having worked with aaron Rodgers. west coast offense is not so much a vertical passing game but i think modern nfl dictates you must do that so if mccarthy has really changed in that regard you're going to see more of that i think And with Green Bay, you also had with McCarthy, I think it was like a 63% passing percentage, which is huge. The Cowboys were 57% last year. And the West Coast offense, if you do run that, it integrates a lot of short passes to the running back as an extension of the running game. So the numbers are still kind of skewed, but we'll see. We'll see on that front. Uh, Surprising moves, though, was the release, if you will, of John Kitna, not bringing him back despite him being... I think very integral to that big step forward Dak Prescott took this past summer 
or this past season. Uh, I don't love him not coming back. I think he would have been a good guy to keep. Although you do keep Kellen Moore, who Dak has worked with for at least the last two years. It is true, however, that this is going to be Dak's, I think, fourth quarterback coach in five years. Like, ugh, that's not good. They are moving Nussmeyer over, former quarterback in his own right. They are moving him over from, I believe he was the tight ends coach to now quarterback coach for Dak. So there's familiarity there, but it's nevertheless still a change. And I mentioned earlier they brought in the coach from the Giants. Uh, Chris Richard is gone. You have other moves like that as well that Dallas is going to have to figure out. They've taken a hard look at running back coach and things of that nature. And I'm curious to see what they're going to do. It looks like they're going to bring back an old running back coach for them. Uh, Skip, going to bring him back. He was here in the round 2012, I think, was his run. I'm curious to see what they're doing. We've seen that they brought in the special teams coach from San Francisco. I think that's a very underrated hiring for the staff, especially considering how good San Francisco is in special teams department compared to the Cowboys who under Garrett the last three or four years have been bottom of the barrel as far as the league is concerned. This is a this is a coaching staff full of change is what this is boiling down to. Only a couple of guys are being retained and McCarthy is bringing in his team, his new staff. I'm very interested to see what they do with this because this is uh, this is going to be it's going to be a fresh look, but we're really going to find out, I think, was the problem the coaching staff or was it the players? Now, a fresh voice in the room sometimes will shake that up for you, so maybe you'll get some benefit in that regard out of the McCarthy hires. But, you know, there's some question regarding McCarthy about, even though he spent a year away from the league and said that he really did soul-searching and all that and that they're going to hire a whole analytics team of like 8 to 14 people or whatever to help them not just understand the analytics and the uh, percentages of stuff during the week in preparation, but also in-game, kind of like John Harborough does uh, with the Ravens this year. And that was huge for them. McCarthy is also the guy who famously said analytics are for losers, but, you know, we'll see. It, we're taking his word and the indication that he has changed. But, you know, it's kind of that thing where it's like, ah, old dog, do you really have a new trick? We'll find out. We'll find out. But it is interesting to note that Mike McCarthy has as many playoff wins in AT&T Stadium as any coach in Cowboys history. Obviously, you only got Jason Garrett in that, but both of them won twice in AT&T Stadium. And, uh, yes, McCarthy won his only Super Bowl at AT&T Stadium in uh, early 2011. So interesting to see there. I, I'm curious to see how this affects the team because this is an offensive hire, and that is the way pretty much all hirings go for head coaches in the NFL these days, most all. It's an offensive hire and a guy that's considered a pretty bright offensive mind, but if you look at his troubles towards the end of his run at Green Bay, you would hear a lot of people have similar criticism to him that the Cowboys actually had for Jason Garrett. So this will be, be an interesting experiment. This is the belief that the problem was the staff, the coaching staff entirely, and not the players. We will find out soon. But at the very least, based on the press conference, the introductory press conference we got from McCarthy, it's going to be a fresh, uh, refreshing experience sitting through those because Garrett 
famously said nothing in his press conferences. It was the most generic, devoid of any real uh, interest pressers you could have. I mean, it was just complete autopilot tune-out mode. And with with McCarthy, at least, you have jokes immediately as, you know, when he interviewed with the with the Joneses, he said that he had watched every play from the Cowboys from the previous season and analyzed it. And at the press conference, hopefully this is a little bit more of a joke than it is an honest admission, he basically had to say, well, you know, um, I told him I saw every play. I actually didn't, but, you know, hey, I wanted the job. And so hopefully, hopefully we'll uh, get that sorted out. I don't know yet if he's communicated with Dak, but I know after, you know, a full week after the hire, he still hadn't. So there were people who were like, so let me get this straight. You say you've changed on analytics, but it looks like you're more so looking for a public endorsement on that front because you didn't have it in the past. You're on record now admitting that you haven't actually watched all of the tape that you said you've watched. And you've yet to reach out to your quarterback who you say you want to build around for the future. You make clear you want Dallas to pay Dak and not just franchise tag him for the upcoming season. But you haven't called him yet. You haven't communicated with him yet. Mm. <laughs> That's a very valid question. So we'll see. But at the very at the very least, I know I keep saying that, but at the very least, it's this is going to be an interesting new era for the Cowboys. And we're going to find out just how good this team is. And last year we asked ourselves, are they contenders or pretenders? They could not have been more clearly pretenders. Let's see if it really is just a fresh coat of paint they need or if there is serious systematic issues they're going to have to spend some time working through. Pivoting now to, yes, you nailed it, Dallas Mavericks talk. We are going to take a look at what in the hell is going on with Kristaps Porzingis because we were told not even an hour before the game last night that he was going to make his return to the starting lineup. KP had already missed eight games at the time, And we were told, hey, he's coming back. He's ready. Twitter, Mavs Twitter was posting about it. Not Mavericks Twitter as in like fans, literally at Dallas Mavs, tweeting that KP was making his return to the starting lineup. Like, oh, how much? Raise your hand if you've missed this guy. And it's him dunking on a dude. You had all that. You had Rick Carlisle talking right before the game, even saying, yes, we have KP. We are ready. Now, to be clear, in these In these games he's missed, we were told a week earlier, last night, made one week earlier, on the 8th, we were told that KP was going to be back. He was going to be back in a couple games. They were like, hey, he's coming back this week. Oh, wait, no, he's actually dealing with a little bit of an illness. He's got a fever. His body is achy, and he's recovering from that. So that stretched it out, but the knee injury in question is not the same left knee he tore his ACL on. It's the right knee. It's the right knee. And we found out that while he was out the rest of last week, even though we were initially told he would have been back that week, we come to find out he had a a platelet-rich injection in that knee to deal with lingering soreness. Now, that uh, helps influence faster recovery and all of that. You see a lot of players doing things of that nature. It's become a little bit commonplace for guys with bothersome knees, but again, KP's 24 years old. And we're not talking about the knee he spent 20 months recovering from. We're talking about the right knee. 
the knee that we otherwise have never heard any problem with. That is a little bit concerning to me. Now, I still believe the Mavericks are just being cautious here and that if they had to have that game last night, like let's say they had been on a losing skid of several games. I know that they had lost back-to-back, um, not last, not before last night. They've won three in a row now. I know that last week they lost back-to-back to the Nuggets on a heartbreaker and then got wiped by the Lakers. I know that. I'm saying if they had then lost a couple more games and found themselves on a four- or five-game skid... And then last night, KP goes out there. They say, hey, he's good to go. And then he goes out there and warms up a little bit. And then he's like, mm, okay, no, something's still wrong. Something doesn't feel right. And suddenly, minutes before tip-off, he's a late scratch. If that had happened and they had really needed that game, do I think they would have played him? Maybe. Because it's clear their interior defense and rebounding desperately miss him and his presence and his ability to stretch the floor and space out a defense, stretch out a defense. But at the same time, you can't deny they are trying to be uber cautious with their five-year, $158 million investment. He's the richest contract in Mavericks history, and he's only 24, but now you're talking about a second issue with with a knee, and it's not even the same knee. That, to me, is almost... I don't know if that's more concerning or less. I'm not panicking. To be clear, I'm not panicking. But I will say I'm concerned. Panic and concern are different. Scale of 1 to 10, 10 is panicking. 10 is like tearing your hair out, hair running, your hair on fire, sprinting down the streets, and just, oh my god, the world is over! I'm not there. If I had to put myself on that scale somewhere between 1 and 10... I would say I'm probably about a four, four and a half. I'm like, I'm looking at it and I am going, hmm, shit. The other knee? Ooh, okay. Um, That doesn't sound good. Oh, an injection? And the late scratch thing that everyone freaked out about last night? Hmm. Okay. If we stretch out another week or two weeks, because now, now after this latest setback, no one's talking about No one's talking about a return. It's not like they said, okay, you know what? He's out one more game. I haven't heard anyone say that. So what what are we talking here? What are we looking at? There are people saying, you know, hey, last night was the 41st game of the year, the halfway point of the season. Perhaps we shut him down now until after the All-Star break. I mean, we're 11 games over 500, so it's not a terrible idea. Like, you need to protect your investment, and that's what you would be doing. You've got the space, even though overall you've been on a bit of a skid. Maybe, just maybe, you need to consider that. Because, again, it's a five-year investment. And you have your Robin to your Batman. Luca's still balling out. I know he's been in a bit of a shooting slump lately, but he just posted the first... 2015, excuse me, he's the youngest player to ever post a 2015-15 stat line as of last night when he scored uh, 25 points, uh, 15 rebounds, and 17 assists. That's impressive. That's impressive. But you know what? It's still something that the Mavericks are going to hurt a little bit until they get KP back, but that's going to be true regardless. What good is, if he's really not ready... 
what good does it do to bring them back prematurely and then lose them for the season? You have to consider that. So I don't know what's going to happen here with KP. I'm not trying to panic yet, but I am, I am moving, uh, you know, moving the marker for me a little bit. I'm bumping it up a couple points now on that panic meter. And I'm just going to have to see, just like all of us, we're going to have to see. But it was damn interesting to me to to find out about the injection and to get the clarification that, no, 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 it's the right knee. It's not the knee that he tore. Because now that changes the picture a little bit. And now you're looking at it and you're saying, he's a seven foot three dude who's pretty explosive for his size and athletic. I mean, consider this, Boban is seven foot four. He's an inch taller, but you see the difference in their body, in their body uh, composition, makeup, and all that, and their fluidity, their speed and explosiveness. Not that not that I'm saying KP is some great sprinter, but way more agile and explosive than Boban. So, ah, I don't know, man. In the meantime, Dallas is gonna have to lean on more Boban minutes. I know he got 20 minutes the other night, uh, a couple games ago, and posted a nice 13 and 11 stat line. I, they're going to have to find more minutes for him for sure, but at the same time, that does change a little bit of what they're able to do. So we're going to have to see. We're going to have to monitor this closely because if this is going to be a problem for KP, then this is going to be a big problem for what was supposed to be. Now, don't get, don't get it twisted. Even in a world where the KP thing due to injury does not ever realize like we hoped it would realize, it's still a good trade. It's still a good trade because... You took assets that were either aging and weren't in your future anyway or a young prospect that wasn't working and now he's flaming out in New York, unfortunately, and he's going to get bounced to a third team. You took those parts and you potentially got your next, your number two guy for the foreseeable future, a guy who is a major difference maker for you on the defensive end of the floor and who, if he could get back right, still has the potential to be a all-star caliber running mate next to Luka. You do it every time, but there is some room now to consider if there's if there's an underlying warning sign here. And hopefully the Mavericks are going about this the right way. And I, I trust the training staff. I trust Casey Smith entirely. They would not have signed off on the deal if they had concerns in the physical. So... I'm hopeful that this is just them being abundantly cautious and saying, you know what, this is just the year where, yes, we want to get back to the playoffs, but we're just putting out there what we have. We're going to see where we stand, and it's just about experience. It's just about them getting familiar and comfortable together and getting to the playoffs for the first time, Luka and KP respectively, getting to the playoffs for the first time. So we're not going to mortgage our future as if, as if this is a closing window and we have to go get it all right now. Troubling times, man. Troubling times. This is a little bit of a different look for you guys, isn't it? For an episode, or rather a post-game show, for the Mavericks being delivered in this way, it's a little bit different. I understand that. I understand. But all the same, because it's in an episode and it's a day for feeling dangerous, it's just going to have to get condensed like this. The layout's slightly different, but you know what? I think we'll be all right. The Dallas Mavericks kept... The, the train chugging along, getting their third straight win. Hey, by the way, in case you haven't noticed, the minute I got back from vacation, they went from a two-game skid to a three-game streak. Hell yeah, man. I'm the lucky charm, apparently, because Dallas picks up a 127-123 victory in Sacramento. And in this game, you have 
go figure, more history made by Luka Doncic as he becomes the youngest player in NBA history to post a stat line of 2015 and 15. He picked up 25 points, 17 assists, 15 rebounds, and he did it on 8 of 18 shooting. His three ball is still not there. 0 of 5 from 3. However, 9 of 10 at the line, considering he was 2 of 8 at the line just the night before. I'm much more so pleased with that. Now, he did have six turnovers, but when you're picking up 17 assists, I'm going to say you still won out. You still put, posted a positive double-digit uh, assist difference there. So I'm going to go ahead and let that one fly. The Mavericks in this game, their defense wasn't great. Honestly, I'm being totally honest when I say that because they gave up 52% shooting compared to just 51% for them. They were outshot from three, 36% to 33%. Uh, They turned it over more, although they still had a solid number at 11. They only forced eight turnovers by the Kings. Darren Fox was a problem for them for sure. Uh, They were out-assisted. They won the rebounding battle by a fairly narrow margin by five boards, 47 to 42, including 13 offensive boards compared to 11. They got a couple blocks. That's nice. Sacramento got more steals. And uh, yeah, this game to me felt like the difference was... The free throw line, Sacramento, 11 of 20 at the line. That is trash. And that was a big impact for them. Meanwhile, you got Dwight Powell, another 8 of 10 from the field for 17 points, 9 boards. He's playing right now really well the last three games. On this streak that they're on, Dwight Powell has been playing great. And as uh, as Chuck Cooperstein, I believe, pointed out on Twitter as well, Dwight Powell's been, uh, excuse me, excuse me, it was Brad Townsend on Twitter, uh, the last six and a half games, Dwight Powell, by the way, six and a half games, that's a weird little distinction to make, but Dwight Powell in the last six and a half games is 42 of 51 from the field, which is outrageously good. Like he's been cooking. So even with us getting frustrated by his performance, even during those two losses that the Mavericks had, uh, he's still cooking a little bit and he's rebounding better as well, I think. So it is something to keep an eye on in that regard. But uh, other standouts for the Mavericks beyond just Luka and Powell, who I've already been talking about the past couple games, you got a solid contribution from pretty much everybody in the game for the Mavericks. Dorian Finney-Smith, 39 minutes. He is the high-minute man for the game, and he puts up 15 points, 8 boards. When you get that kind of production out of Dorian Finney-Smith, you're generally in good territory. He's shooting 38% on three-pointers this year, which is crazy good. And as I believe it was Dalton Trigg pointed out on, uh, yes, as he pointed out on Twitter, 38% from three for Dorian Finney-Smith this year, but 44% from the left corner. That is ridiculous. That is something I never thought Dorian Finney-Smith would be able to add to his game. So the fact that he has, kudos to Dodo for adding that to his game because that makes you a complete 3 and D player and we know about his vicious putback dunks and athleticism, his long-rangey defense, 6'9 with a 6'11 uh, wingspan, very nice in that regard. That admit, that makes him the clear winner over my initial dude, Justin Jackson, who, hey, had himself a little bit of a, a moment as well with a, a deep 3 to beat the buzzer. But uh, also in this game you get... 18 points out of Tim Hardaway Jr. on 7 of 15 shooting, only 3 of 9 on 3, but still more than or just under 50% shooting for Hardaway, 18 and 6, he's rebounding pretty well lately and uh two assists as well. 
Maxi gives you 14 and 4 in 30 minutes. Seth Curry had himself a great first half with 16 points. He ends up with 21 for the game on 7 of 11 shooting, 5 of 8 from 3. Surprisingly, only 2 of 4 at the line. That's a 90% free throw shooter, so that's a little out of character. Uh, DeLon Wright, only 14 minutes, but he gave you 8, 3, and 4 on 4 of 7 shooting, and he gave you another block. Like, I I seriously think we need to find more minutes for DeLon Wright, but I don't know. A guy I think is in trouble with Dallas is Jalen Brunson. He plays 10 minutes, 2 points on 1 of 5 shooting, 0 of 1 from 3. I think Jalen Brunson is going to be dealt at the deadline, and I think he has had a very up-and-down year this year with the Mavericks. I I like him. I'm hoping it's just a little bit of a rut that he's been in this year, but you know what? For the large part of this season, he's fallen off. We've got so many backcourt guys at this point that it's just not a very viable option to get him the minutes and to expect the same kind of production we got out of him last year. So I would say if there is a deal brewing in Dallas, whether it's a Covington deal or something like that, I know they just dealt in uh, they just dealt Teague, Minnesota did, back to Atlanta, and word is they're looking for more deals and they want a ball handler. Well, we've got a lot of those to offer, so... Maybe there is a Covington deal there potentially on the on on the plate for Dallas. I would very much believe Brunson would be part of that deal if that comes to be, but we shall see. Uh, for the Kings, you had Harrison Barnes and De'Aaron Fox doing the most damage. Actually, Buddy Heald, you had three guys basically carry the load for them in that game. Not much production from the bench uh, for them. Looks like they had about 20-something, about 22, 23 points off the bench did the Kings. Harrison Barnes in 39 minutes gave them 25 and 8 on 10 of 18 shooting. That's a pretty solid game from Harrison Barnes. That's better than what we were getting out of him towards the end of his run in Dallas. De'Aaron Fox, meanwhile, is a problem for the league. He posts a near triple-double, 27 points, 12 assists, and 7 rebounds on 11 of 17 shooting. Only 3 of 9 at the line, though. So he kind of like Luka has something going on there, it looks like. But De'Aaron Fox is a problem. I will say this, although I'm not upset because obviously we flipped Dennis Smith Jr. for uh, KP, and I think KP is the best partner next to Luka, if healthy, long-term. And you can't even have a production with both guys having to have the ball that, like you would have if you had a De'Aaron Fox and a Luka together. But the fact remains the same. We chose Dennis Smith Jr., who had a quality rookie year, over De'Aaron Fox. And uh, De'Aaron Fox is clearly the better of those two players, so... Hey, it worked out for us. We got a mulligan, apparently, and it was... Not only was it a mulligan, we did better on the second go-around, I think. But uh, De'Aaron Fox is a player, and he's a beast. Buddy Heald, meanwhile, my dude from OU. 37 minutes, 25 points. Three boards, two assists. 10 of 23 shooting, so... 25 points on 23 shots? Oof. Not good. Not good. Uh, At least not productive. Under 50% shooting, only 3 of 11 on threes. Not a great game from him. Uh, Bilicia also gave them 11 points, 12 boards, 5 assists. That's pretty damn quality there. Marvin Bagley, the guy taken right before Luka in the draft. 30 minutes, 12.7 rebounds. I almost said assists. That would be incorrect. Luka had more assists, I believe, last night with 17 than Bagley has on the season was a stat I saw earlier. Now, again, they don't have the same role and they don't do the same things, but that is technically true and something that's technically true is the best kind of true depending on your perspective in this case 
Marvin Bagley, though, uh, his 12 and 7 was very quiet. Like Luca, his fingerprints are all over the game. I mentioned earlier he became the youngest player to post the 2015-15 stat line. He also did it and he tied the record as well for fastest to do it, that being Jokic. So, damn. Luca with two, I know there's a stat for everything, and Luca doesn't care about him either, but it does give some context and perspective to how special what we're witnessing is. Luca balled out, had himself a nice game, and uh, while his fingerprints were everywhere and very noticeable, Marvin Bagley, yeah, he, was, he was kind of there. He, he was a quiet 12-7, and seven, and I think while he's a nice player, he'll probably have a decade-plus-long career. You know, they had De'Aaron Fox, and they hit on Fox. Luka and Fox together maybe doesn't make sense, obviously, because of the ball-handling thing. So maybe you could argue by that logic they made what was a decent choice for them. But if you want to put it just one-on-one, head-to-head, and just look at it on the basis of just Luka versus Bagley, yeah, they missed. Elsewhere, uh, Riza, very quiet game out of him in 19 minutes, only three points, only three shot attempts, all three from three. One and two there. Uh, Corey Joseph, Yogi Ferrell, hey, our old Maverick buddy there. 15 minutes, nine points. Yeah, not uh, not a huge game. I still have interest in Dwayne Dedman. I did not play in the game. DNP, coach's decision. I am interested in that possibility of Dwayne Dedman. I think he gives you some front court help. Uh, nice defender, and as he showed with Atlanta last year, he can help you stretch the floor a little bit as well. So if you really are concerned about KP a little bit, there you go. Another guy that to a lesser degree can perform uh, somewhat similarly in that regard and still give you a little bit of help in some other areas you need. So just something to consider. But this is a good win for the Mavericks. I know it's a close win, only a four-point win, but it moves them to 11 games over 500. It builds them now with a little bit of momentum after having been on a skid there. And now they come back to the AAC, because the AAC has not been super kind to us. We come back to the AAC now Friday to face the Portland Trailblazers with Dame Lillard and a somewhat seemingly rejuvenated Carmelo Anthony. Something to consider there. But uh, that's going to do it for this. Again, sorry for the delay on the Mavericks talk for the postgame show. Don't worry about it. We still got more Feeling Dangerous coming. What? Wrestling content? AEW content? What in the world is this? What is happening? I don't even know. Actually, I do know because I wrote the segment and prepared this episode. So, yeah. Yeah, we're going to take just a quick pivot to talk a little bit about AEW and their world champion, Chris Jericho. Now, with Jericho, he's been the man for AEW since they launched in terms of weekly television on TNT. It's been great on Wednesday nights to have wrestling back on TNT and to specifically have like a big rival now to WWE. Now, to be clear, while AEW did get a multi-year deal that'll keep them on TNT through 2023 now, they've got a long way to go before they can even dream of really butting heads with WWE, but their product is refreshing. It brings a a different style, a more hybrid between an indie style and uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling style to the mainstream in the U.S. And right now they're going head-to-head on Wednesday nights with NXT, who's also obviously picked up a national broadcast deal. And that's really intriguing as well because 
I know I have yet to really dig into NXT, but they're doing some great things as well. And for now, AEW and NXT is a pretty good, you know, head-to-head rivalry on that night. AEW has won almost all of the ratings wars week by week thus far. There has been a couple times where NXT has jumped up and passed them. One week on Christmas Day, specifically, uh, AEW flat out took the week off because they didn't want to, I guess, take the hit of the low ratings on Christmas. And even then, NXT failed to break a million viewers, so... There is something to be said there about that, but a big part of what's helping AEW, other than just the phenomenal talents at the top with Cody Rhodes, Dustin Rhodes, uh, you got Chris Jericho, you got John Moxley, aka Dean Ambrose, you got Kenny Omega, you got the Young Bucks. You have a lot of great talented guys there who have built up their brand and their reputation uh, elsewhere away from the WWE in recent years. But Chris Jericho's ability to reinvent himself has been phenomenal throughout his career. He he is legitimately entering the conversation of one of the greatest of all time. I still hesitate. There are some people who say he is the greatest. I hesitate to say that, but the guy is in his late 40s. He's still a great worker, fantastic charisma on the mic. Uh, he is relentless and tireless in his ability and in his effort to reinvent himself. You think about the whiny cruiserweight that he was in WCW in the mid to late 90s where he was the man of a thousand and four holds just in his feud with uh, Dean Malenko, the man of a thousand holds. And you you had so much great bits from him back then where he was just a whiny heel. He, he lost in controversial fashion his cruiserweight championship, and so he went the next week uh, WCW was in Washington, D.C., and so he literally went to the steps of Congress trying to get people to sign his petition for a rematch for wrestling, and this was just like an actual bit that he did. People had no idea who he was or what you know wrestling he, uh, he was even representing. They're like, a wrestling match? What? Like, everyone was confused. It was just a hilarious comic gold, and you had other moments as well with that. You had him... Um, I already mentioned the thousand and four holds. You had his feud with Goldberg, where he basically brought out it was basically the WCW Gilberg in that case. You had all kinds of great moments like that. Then he goes to WWE in '99, going into 2000. He's the millennial man in this case. Y2J persona is born, and they make him into a main eventer. He's the first ever undisputed champion, and then you start getting an infrequent period in his career where he's balancing his rock band Fozzie, formerly Stuck Mojo. And he's balancing that with coming back to the ring. So you have him leave around 2005 or six, come back in 2007 with a bit of a new look. And then he was kind of following at the time when he first came back those same beats, but he didn't feel like they were working. So he reinvented himself, uh, became a heel character again in 2010. He became kind of like a character from No Country from Old Man, the very slow talking and intense heel and he got it over he worked uh he made it work he had a fantastic feud with Shawn michaels in that span as well and he's been very good at reinventing himself i will say things did get stale for me between 2012 and probably 2016 he had a couple of returns in there and even though he'd have all these great promos and vignettes that would run before his return he couldn't quite find the next right formula but he reinvented himself then again uh, forming a partnership with Kevin Owens at that time, the Universal Champion in WWE, and you got things like the List of Jericho and just this new persona where he was still the the conniving heel, but he suddenly was a little bit goofier, a little bit sillier. 
uh, and his approach and everything like that. So he got that over in a big, big way, and he still he got a moderate push. I mean, his push was really just at Kevin Owens' side during Owens' push, and then they ended up coming to a head and having their feud after the Festival of Friendship fell apart. And yeah, after that, he he left. He went to New Japan Pro Wrestling. He had some great success over there, and then he comes to AEW, and now he's reinvented himself again, where now he is their inaugural champion. And he's had a pretty good run since they opened up business on weekly television back in October. He's feuded with a lot of talent. Cody Rhodes, uh, he's, he's, he's done what you want your champion to do. He's not just feuding with the guys at the top of the card, but he is having good matches and giving kind of a rub for some of these guys in the middling ground. And making them look like stars. That's the best thing you can do in that case. Because it gives them a boost. And it definitely avoids the perception that you only work with the very, very top guys. Now, he's not doing huge programs with the middle card guys. But it is what it is. He's really been able to reinvent himself. And now this new persona, which is kind of a hybrid of the previous one. But instead of being quite as goofy, he's a little bit more of a... He's a little bit more intense. But he's got this new faction around him. His inner circle... Uh, you know, Hager is there, the former Jack Swagger from WWE. You have Sammy Guevara. You have uh, his, why am I blanking on his tag team? That uh, The two Hispanic wrestlers that are his tag team uh, within his faction. I'm blanking on them for some reason. I guess because the last episode I watched of uh, AEW Dynamite, for whatever reason, they weren't in the ring with him during his promo with Dean Ambrose. But now he's working, excuse me, John Moxley. He's doing his program now with John Moxley. That's the big match that they're building up for. That's a really interesting thing there as well that they're doing. But he's got this whole new persona. Let's champion. Uh, drinking a little bit of the bubbly. He's just he's got this very good knack for getting things over, whether it's just the funny way he talks about them or just his charisma in general. You know, the the list of Jericho was like a WWE thing, so now it's the lexicon of Le Champion. Like he does a good job blending the goofiness while still being kind of the the shit-eating grin of a heel. And it's worked out great for him. And I think it's been exactly what AEW needs in its inaugural champion because it gives the baddie. You always want the baby face, the top baby faces chasing that baddie uh, in terms of the title and everything like that. If you put a championship on the baby face, it's hard to keep that momentum going for a long time. And I think that they've been really smart in how they've broken it up. They did not put the belt immediately on Cody Rhodes because they understood that would actually be a bad thing to do given his stake in the company and starting it up. One, it would look too much like self-aggrandizing for him, where like he's just crowning himself in this case because he does have an official title with the company. It would have been the very easy thing to do to have it the first pay-per-view that Jericho had to defend it to put it on Cody. And Cody even one-upped it by saying if he lost to Jericho in that match, which we know wrestling is not forever, nothing is forever, but his uh, stipulation he imposed on himself was that if he lost that match, he would never challenge for the title again. Obviously, that's not going to be the case. At some point, Cody Rhodes will be the AEW World Champion. But for now, it was a good way to get heat uh, for Jericho as well in that match. And you know what? They've handled a lot of his storyline very well, I think, with Jericho. I think you've seen a little bit of everything from him. Uh, the inner circle is the main the main staple, I would say. It, you have the elite, which is you know your Cody Rhodes, Young Bucks... Hangman Adam Page is kind of on the outskirt of that right now. And uh, you have Kenny Omega. You have them. 
the former Bullet Club, but the All Elite and the Elite and All Elite. And you have the Inner Circle. Those are the two main factions, and they've been feuding. So that's the best stuff right now on AEW. And Jericho, I think, was the right guy at the right time. The way he's been able to reinvent himself, even after a little bit of a slow period there in the early two thousand, early to mid-2010s, I think he's really done a great job. And I don't know how many more years he has. Obviously, his body has changed quite a bit in the past few years, really the past couple years. But at the same time, he's still working great. His charisma is irrefutable. And I think he's got a chance to really help AEW not only hang around and be competitive for now, but I think he has a chance to help lead them into legitimate contention, certainly with NXT and possibly with time, even uh, even the big boys on the block in WWE. But I don't know, man. Uh, it's all I know. The main thing I do know is it is exciting to actually watch wrestling again on Thursday, or excuse me, on Wednesday nights now. Kind of like the Monday Night Wars of old now, instead of watching WWF as it was known then and WCW Monday Nitro, instead of watching Raw and Nitro, I'm now focused instead on Wednesday nights on NXT and AEW Dynamite. And it's really refreshing. It's it's a little nostalgic for me, and it's a great product. Both Both companies are doing a great bang-up job there. I wish I could say the same for the main roster for WWE for SmackDown and Raw, because, oof. I don't know how long it's going to be before you get me talking about that very frequently. But this does it for my time here on the not re- it's, I was almost going to say inaugural edition of the revitalized feeling dangerous, but it's really not. Uh, whatever you want to call this episode two of the revitalized feeling dangerous, whatever. That is a wrap regardless for feeling dangerous here. Thank you for everyone for tuning in. Look for a lot more content on this. Again, I'm going to try and do this kind of show for you guys three times a week. And it's going to be a mix of sports, pop culture. You're going to have Dallas Cowboys talk. You're going to have Dallas Mavericks talk. You're going to have some post-game talk in there. You're going to have previews in there. You're going to have film, gaming, whatever. We're going to talk about it. So if you like this, if you're on YouTube, give the video a like. Leave a comment below. Subscribe to the Dallas Prospect. Uh, If you're following the podcast, if you're listening to this on Anchor or Apple Podcast or Google Play or whatever other platform, I know it's out there on like seven platforms thanks to Anchor, follow follow the podcast, support the podcast, buy the shirts at represent.com. And until next time, guys, remember, every legend was once a prospect.